Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show features a discussion with one of the top experts on Myanmar, a country that is now going through an important transition to democracy, plus the next installment of Steve Hess Stories. And finally, my conversation with the director of the India Project here at Brookings. If you have any questions for these or other guests on this show, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. My guest today is Lex Riefel. He is a non-resident senior fellow in our Global Economy and Development Program, a widely published scholar on a variety of issues in Southeast Asia, and a former U.S. Treasury economist and senior executive at the Institute of International Finance. Welcome to the show, Lex. Thank you, Fred. So we're going to talk about the country Myanmar. Am I pronouncing that right? I don't think I am. Uh, pretty close. Uh, the In the language of the country, they dropped the R at the end, so it's more Myanmar. Okay. Well, I th- I'm thinking of this episode as sort of a Myanmar 101, and also I want to talk a lot about the uh, the news that we've been hearing out of that country lately with its uh, transition to um, more democratic institutions. But let's start with some basic geographical facts for listeners, such as like the size of the country, its population, its general location in the world, and so on. Fred, if I may, I'd like to start by saying that from my point of view, this is a good news story about a country with a history of a lot of bad news and still the source of a lot of bad press. The person at very much the center of this story is Aung San Suu Kyi, the world's number one living icon of democracy. So on the geography, look, um, Myanmar, or Burma, as some people call it, uh, is located between China and India. The other countries that have borders with Myanmar are Thailand, Bangladesh, and Laos. The land area is 30% bigger than Thailand's and twice as big as Vietnam, which gives you a sense of its size in uh, Southeast Asia, in mainland Southeast Asia, big. Its population is relatively a little smaller, uh, 55 million. That's 20% fewer than Thailand and 30% fewer than Vietnam. Why or when should we call it Burma? Should we call it Burma or is that an archaic term? Uh, Fred, this is a horribly politicized issue. Burma is the name given by the British to to its new colony. It's a corruption of of the name the country called itself in its own language. The name was changed by the military junta in 1989 for nationalist reasons. But the new name was never, uh, the new name was accepted immediately by the United Nations under the normal procedures. But Aung San Suu Kyi never accepted the change because it was not made democratically. Therefore, the United States government and other Western democracies continue to call the country Burma. But I I should mention that uh, the name of the country was not mentioned at all in the short inaugural address of the new president, U Tin Cho, last Wednesday. Also, in one of the first press releases issued by the new Minister of Information, the name of the country was referred to as Myanmar, not, not Burma. That's the official English translation. So it's a good question. When will the U.S. government stop using Burma and start calling the country Myanmar? Uh, let's go into politics. You've mentioned uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. You've mentioned the new president. Um, you called the November 2015 elections remarkably free and fair. Why, why did you call it that and what happened? Well, uh, what happened is that... Uh, the military rulers of this country uh, decided, and this was based on a roadmap that actually had been announced in 2003, like 12 years before, they decided to, to hold a free and fair election. This is uh, the election last November. 
following five years after the election in 2010, which is really the beginning of the transition to this uh, democratic uh, rule, in that election, the military made sure that the military party, the government-led uh, party, sponsored, supported party, won, won 80% of the seats. But for, uh, you know, in this, in this vision of transition that uh, began uh, more than a decade ago, the military rulers wanted to have what the West would consider a free and fair election. And uh, they invited into the country in the, the last three, four years, they invited experts from around the world to help uh, build the election system, uh, the registration system, the, the, the polling system, the, all of the, you know, the details of a good uh, election system. And it was um, pretty uh, free and fair. It was monitored by the Carter Institute and other election monitoring organizations around the world. And generally, uh, they gave the election process high marks. This is the military junta that had been in, in power since the 1960s, I think? Well, look, the military role in Myanmar goes way, way back to independence. I mean, this is, uh, this is the strongest by far institution in the country. It, uh, it fought the war that brought independence to this country from uh, the British in 1948. Mm -hmm. In the first years of independence, the country had a parliamentary democracy, but it became increasingly dysfunctional, partly because they were ongoing um, well, the, the government was fighting an insurgency from communists on the one hand and ethnic minorities on the other hand. And it was the military that kept the country together. But in 1962, the commander-in-chief of the army, Ne Win, staged a coup and ruled the country with an iron fist for the next uh, 26 years. At the same time, he adopted severe isolationist and socialist policies and the economy went into a tailspin. This led to the uprising in 1998 that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi led more or less by, by accident and, and in an election in 1990 that was also remarkably free and fair but won by the opposition party, by Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the NLD. But the military rulers weren't ready to cede power to the civilians at that point. And uh, so uh, there was a military junta that ruled the country until until 2011, when the first quasi-democratic, quasi-civilian government came into office. I learned something really fascinating in my research for this episode, that Aung San Suu Kyi's father was the leader, I think, of the, um, in, of the independence movement in the 1940s. Is that right? It's absolutely right, and it gets a little more uh, weird than that, because, in fact, uh, General Aung San uh, was trained by the Japanese and fought with the Japanese to liberate uh, the colony of Burma from British rule in 1942. And then in 1944, when uh, it looked as though Japan was not going to prevail, uh, it uh, switched sides and joined the Allied forces that drove, drove uh, the Japanese out of the country. And then one of the first tragedies in this country is that General Aung San who had broad support within the country, was assassinated six months before the country gained its independence in January 1948. Uh, let's go back to the present. I'm going to ask you to unpack um, a statement that you wrote. It's kind of long, but I'm going to read it because there's a lot, lot going on here. And you wrote, how Myanmar deals with the challenges that arise during this transition will have implications for the rest of the world in resolving longstanding conflicts, building democratic institutions, 
achieving sustainable economic growth, exploiting natural resource wealth, and mitigating tension between religions. It may also affect the pace and character of Asia's rise in the 21st century. Well, maybe just a little bit, uh, <laughs> little bit extreme, but uh, l- let me try, uh, make a couple of points. I'll start with my worst fear. Uh, my, the biggest, what I think of as the biggest potential tragedy, new tragedy for this country. So much foreign aid is poured in and will pour in now that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi is leading the government, that it may do more harm than good, becoming a factor that actually derails the transition. This has happened in other countries. Then the biggest question in my mind is the parliamentary structure. This kind of structure was dysfunctional in the 1950s. Why is it going to be better now? Also, Indonesia's experience with the parliamentary system it created after beginning its democratic transition in 1998 has not been particularly encouraging. Now, if the transition does succeed, One of the biggest impacts could be on Thailand, ending pressure to end military rule there, one of the biggest impacts outside the country. And already we see an impact on the 10-member ASEAN community, where Myanmar has moved from being the least respected, least democratic member to potentially the most respected and most democratic. It is also, I have to say, far-fetched to think that a successful transition would have any measurable impact on political reform in China. But if Aung San Suu Kyi's government can effectively address its resource curse issue and the religious tensions in the country, it could provide a kind of roadmap roadmap for other countries and other parts of the world. Now, you said that Aung San Suu Kyi is leading the government, but she's not the president of Myanmar, is she? The only reason she is not the president is that the 2008 constitution includes a provision written specifically to preclude the possibility of her becoming president. This is a provision that says no person who has family members holding foreign passports can, or foreign citizenship can be president of the country. Uh, because of this constitutional obstacle, which Aung San Suu Kyi tried to have removed or modified or reinterpreted in her conversations with the military uh, powers that be during the months after the election last November, um, having sort of failed to uh, reach any accommodation on that point, she selected uh, one of her closest colleagues and a longtime NLD leader, U Tin Cho, to be the, the president. And because of the majorities her party had in the lower house and upper house of parliament, and because of the uh, sort of electoral college system for electing the president. In other words, it's not a direct election. She was able to uh, have this person become the president along with one of the two vice presidents uh, from her party. And the other vice president is appointed by the military. Because the military controls a large block in the parliament, right? 25% of the seats in the union parliament, the national parliament, are reserved for the military, and 25% of the seats in all of the regional and state uh, assemblies are reserved for the military, plus three of the 21 ministerial posts, uh, these are key posts dealing with uh, internal and external security, are reserved for the military. I also read that she holds four cabinet positions and also the first bill introduced by the new government is is to make her something called like a state counselor. Is that 
Can you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Um, as of today, she only holds two ministerial positions because uh, today it was announced. Well, today uh, the president uh, nominated two people to be the, the electric power and energy minister and the education minister. So the two ministerial port portfolios that Aung San Suu Kyi still holds are foreign minister and minister of the office of the president. The state councillor new position not uh, based on anything in the Constitution is, uh, is quite controversial. The bill in the, uh, in the parliament to create this position was um, objected to by some members of the upper house, but it passed and has been reported out by the relevant committee in the lower house favorably, but the, uh, but the military and, and some other uh, members of parliament have sharply criticized the, the bill as being inconsistent with the constitution. But uh, she has the, uh, the majorities to prevail and then she has the popular support to prevail. And we will see what she makes of this position. Uh, when you say today, I just want to clarify for listeners that we're talking about uh, April 4th. Let's take a quick break for the next installment of Steve Hess Stories. Here, Steve talks about how he met and became friends with Daniel Patrick Moynihan. We had a family friend uh, named Arthur Goldberg, <laughs> a man uh, who was, had been a labor lawyer, had put together the AFL-CIO, and was now Secretary of Labor in the Kennedy administration. And Moynihan came down to uh, Washington to be a special assistant to Arthur Goldberg. And Arthur Goldberg, who did things like this, simply declared that Moynihan and Hess were going to be friends. Uh, and of course, he was absolutely right. Uh, we wanted to be around each other. We had fun. When he was invited by Nixon uh, to be in the White House, very surprising, of course, he was a liberal Democrat, much associated with Kennedy. Uh, Nixon coming in was the conservative Republican. Uh, but uh, he asked me to be his assistant. And I thought I had to do it. I had to do it because how could I ever have more fun in life than being his assistant? And also, I thought, gee, he, he needs me here. I knew the Republicans. He's this Democrat. He needs somebody who could, who knows the players. Of course, I was quite wrong. He could figure out the players as quickly as I could point them out to him. So he became the, he became the assistant of the president for urban affairs. And by title, I became the deputy assistant of the president for urban affairs. But basically, I was his chief of staff. And, um, you know, ultimately, I considered him certainly the, the best friend of my second life. You have friends from high school and college and so forth. But uh, when he died, his wife, who became a great friend too, Liz, she said, what of his would you like? Would, is there anything you want? And I thought a moment. I said, um, I'd like some bow ties. He's famous for his bow ties, of course. And she said, you don't wear bow ties. And I said, that's right. I'm going to have them framed. So she gave me three. She was, she was wise. She gave me sort of ratty ones, ones that had clearly been used. And I took them and I had them framed. Uh, and they sit on a little easel in my living room. And hardly a day goes by that I don't pass them. Think of Pat Boynihan. You can listen to all of these stories on our SoundCloud channel and listen to the episode of this podcast on which I interviewed Steve about his book, The Professor and the President, in which he recounts the odd pairing of Moynihan and Richard Nixon in the White House. And now back to the interview with Lex Riefel. Lex, what is the resource curse 
that I've heard about, and how does it affect Myanmar? Well, thank you for asking about this, uh, Fred, because it's really an essential part of understanding uh, this country. Myanmar suffers from as bad a resource curse as any country in the world today. This term uh, was coined by economists and political scientists to reflect the an observation that countries in the third world, if you'll pardon the expression, developing countries that have abundant resources have have done poorly in terms of development, uh, raising per capita incomes in their countries relative to countries that have fewer resources. Why is this the case? It seems to be seems to be a result of uh, a powerful elite in these resource-rich countries that basically use the rents, the profits from extracting these resources to maintain themselves in power, uh, to feather their nests, and to invest in more extraction. By contrast, the, uh, the leaders or the elite in, uh, in low, in resource-poor countries uh, have to scramble to invest in human resources and build health and education systems and infrastructure that basically moves their country from low-income status to middle-income status. So let's stick on the, on the economy for a minute, just again for listeners. What are some of the resources that uh, Myanmar has? Does it have exports? What does it import? Uh, and what kinds of industries are its people employed? The, the number one export is natural gas. Uh, which is being exported to Thailand uh, for the last 15 years, 15, 16 years. And that gas is used to produce 25% of the electricity consumed in Thailand. So it's a big, big deal. And then just a few years ago, two, three years ago, uh, a dual natural gas and crude oil pipeline was built from the Indian Ocean across the heartland of Myanmar to Yunnan province in southern China. And uh, so this is uh, at least in the recorded, in the official exports of the country, the, the biggest source of export earnings. There's a lot of, um, lot of questions about the jade industry because uh, by some uh, accounts, the, the value of the jade that, is, that, leaves, <laughs> that leaves Myanmar, uh, most of it smuggled out of the country, exceeds the, the value of the uh, natural gas that is exported. And, uh, but uh, a very small amount of it is reflected in the official statistics or in terms uh, or reflected in uh, budget revenue, taxes, taxes and royalties from jade. This, is, this jade is all going to China because China is, is basically the world's uh, sole consumer of jade. And, it's, uh, and that's a pretty horrible situation. And it's, uh, it's one of the one of the resources that is fueling the conflict inside the country. Uh, the other big resource that's fueling a conflict is timber. And uh, there are also uh, gem, I mean, there are rubies, gold, and there's copper and a bunch of other uh, minerals. Well, it's, look, this is an agricultural economy. 70% of the population lives in the rural areas and is dependent on agricultural uh, activity for its uh, livelihood. Uh, but uh, there is a limited amount of uh, light manufacturing. There are uh, big plans for all kinds of industrial development, but the expectation 
is that the NLD government will try to mostly encourage labor-intensive manufacturing in the garment industry, uh, for example. But one of the biggest potential, I would say the biggest potential source of high-quality growth is the agriculture sector. This country was the world's leading exporter of rice before World War II. It has the agricultural capacity, the fertile land, uh, to be one of the world's biggest exporters of rice. It also is beautifully located to be a provider of high-value agricultural projects, uh, fruits and vegetables, to these huge consuming countries of India and China and also the rest of Southeast Asia. But I also learned in my research that there's not a single highway or railroad connecting Myanmar with any of its five neighboring countries. That is true. That's one of the amazing facts about this country. Its infrastructure is, um, uh, I hesitate to say medieval, but uh, not, not too far above that. And one of the saddest things is that uh, electricity consumption is among the lowest in the world, per capita electric, uh, electric consumption. And this is a country that is exporting electricity to both Thailand and China. Electricity that uh, most people would say Myanmar needs much more than its neighboring countries need. But I want to go back to what you said at the very beginning of this discussion about there being uh, this is a good news story. Uh, I also learned that Myanmar is experiencing perhaps the fastest rollout of any country its size in terms of mobile phone coverage. Yeah, this is an amazing story. One of the earliest uh, moves of the previous um, sort of military-sponsored government, this is the government led by uh, President Thane Sein, was to uh, award uh, licenses to two foreign companies to build out the mobile telephone network. These, these licenses were awarded in 2012 when mobile phone penetration was less than uh, 10% in the country, maybe closer to 5% than 10%. And now it's over 50%. Uh, this is 3G and 4G technology that's been rolling out across the country. That means that uh, everyone who has a smartphone has internet access. So there's going to be more internet access through smartphones than through any other internet access. And I believe that um, uh, this, this simple technology advance is going to have a, a major impact on, on economic life in Myanmar and political life in Myanmar in the years to come. And just one example is mobile banking. This is a country that had, still has a cash-based economy. A faith in banks was totally destroyed under the military regimes. It is now slowly, actually fairly rapidly being restored, that is, faith in banks. But I believe that mobile banking is going to take off in the next five years faster than sort of bricks and mortar regular routine uh, banking. And er earlier in the show, I, uh, I quoted at length something you wrote where you also mentioned the tensions between religions. Can you just quickly address the, the communal religious tensions in Myanmar, particularly uh, the anti-Muslim sentiment um, in that, you know, it's a majority Buddhist country? Oh, uh, Fred, this is a really, really tough issue. It's very hard for people to understand the uh, depths of anti-Muslim uh, sentiment in this country. You know, people in the West have an image of Buddhism being a peaceful and nonviolent religion. The reality is that extremism exists as much in this religion as in others. 
in the past 20 to 30 years, this anti, this extreme sort of Buddhist nationalism has become more virulent, perhaps encouraged by the military to justify its role in maintaining order. Never in my wide travels through the world have I seen such deeply rooted racism directed in Myanmar toward the Muslims. Its origins are too complicated here to explain, I'm afraid. But the worst recent manifestation was attacks in 2012 on the Rohingya community in Rakhine State on the border with Bangladesh. These attacks forced more than 100,000 people into internment camps and prompted thousands to flee by boat, with many perishing at sea. I also have to say I get angry with people who criticize Aung San Suu Kyi for not speaking out against the persecution of this community and many other human rights abuses occurring elsewhere in the country. There would not be an Aung San Suu Kyi-led NLD government in Myanmar today if she had been an outspoken human rights crusader. I am absolutely convinced of this. Americans have some idea of how hard it is to be president of the United States. I have to believe that being the leader of Myanmar's government today is inherently a tougher job. Look, the U.S. government can function on autopilot. Myanmar's government cannot. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Myanmar's relationship with the United States. What is the sort of the the attitude of the U.S. government toward Myanmar and, and what perhaps is Myanmar looking for in a uh, relationship with the United States and, and even other Western powers? It's another complicated subject. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a history of extreme political and economic sanctions imposed by the United States against Myanmar between the late 1990s and 2011. The population suffered, but at the same time, the population continued to admire democracy in America. The United States has always been the top destination for refugees from this country. U.S. policy did a 180-degree turn from the George W. Bush policy of sanctions to the Obama policy of engagement in 2009. Uh, the White House drove U.S. policy before Obama was president, not the State Department. And now Congress drives policy because, I believe, of Senator McConnell's fixation on Aung San Suu Kyi. As majority leader, he's in a position to block any legislation disapproved by Aung San Suu Kyi or pass almost any she asks for. Uh, also, I should mention that the USAID program has ramped up since 2011, but is far smaller than Japan's. It would be really interesting to see how relations evolve between the United States and Aung San Suu Kyi's government over the coming years. I could also mention that Hillary Clinton has described the new policy toward, or the Obama administration policy toward Myanmar as one of her biggest successes when she was Secretary of State. And Obama visited Myanmar twice. Yeah, I remember seeing the, uh, the photos of President Obama and Aung San Suu Kyi at those, both of those meetings. It was quite striking. Um, so looking ahead, Lex, what are you uh, looking at, what are you looking for in terms of political, economic, social development that will signal to you uh, progress from this new government? Okay. Uh, look, I, uh, I did a, um, a, a blog piece for Brookings uh, quite, quite recently, and uh, I, I singled out five, five things to, to look for. Uh, here they are. The first one is steps that 
Aung San Suu Kyi's government would take to develop a productive working relationship with the military leadership, especially in designing and implementing a new peace process. Because, look, this is a country where civil war has raged since independence in 1948, and it's impossible to imagine progress, economic progress in this country, if that, that state of warfare continues. Uh, so number two, a thing to look for, is getting the parliament to support reform legislation without caving in to populist pressure and vested interests. Number three, I say, is changing the mindset in the bureaucracy from protecting its entitlements to serving the public. And this is not an easy mindset to change in that kind of a culture that, with that kind of a history. The fourth thing to look for is managing natural resources in a sound manner. And here, Aung San Suu Kyi's decision on whether to resume construction of the Mitsun Dam in Kachin State, which is a China project, Chinese project, whether to resume construction, extend the suspension that her predecessor uh, uh, started five years ago, or to terminate the project, may be the single most crucial policy decision she has to make in the next six months. Finally, my fifth thing to look for is adopting and implementing agriculture sector policies that start to raise household incomes in the rural sector. So let's uh, let's uh, let's change our scope a little bit as we as we finish up here. You've talked a lot about the politics, the history, the economics of Myanmar. What about on a personal level? Um, how often have you visited the country? What kind of things have you done there? What's your favorite thing to do in Myanmar? Uh, Fred, there's not much to say here except that my my first visit was in 1967. My second one was in 1998. My third in 2005. And then between 2010 and 2014, I was there twice a year for visits of two weeks to three months. My last visit was uh, February of last year when I was a visiting fellow at the Institute of Southeast Asia Studies in Singapore and was working on a study of the state-owned enterprise in Myanmar. I also may go back this uh, summer to teach a course in economics. I haven't uh, traveled really in this country as a tourist. I've basically been going there to uh, look at the economic transition, to meet the uh, economists in the country, to try to sort of understand uh, what this transition is all about. All I, I, I would say that uh, the, the greatest pleasure I have when I'm there is simply traveling around the country and meeting people and hearing their stories and seeing what they're doing. Well, thank you for joining me today, Lex, and, and, and uh, talking to us about Myanmar. Thank you, Fred. You can visit our website to learn more about Lex Riafel and his research on Myanmar and other issues in Southeast Asia. And now Tanvi Madan, director of the India Project and a fellow in foreign policy at Brookings, talks to me about India and its Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. Tanvi, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Fred. Can you review the significance of Narendra Modi's election to Prime Minister of India just two years ago? Uh, when Prime Minister Narendra Modi came to office, uh, it was considered fairly significant for a number of reasons. Uh, he came to power uh, in a majority. Uh, this was the first majority government in 25 years. It was the first non-coalition, non-Congress party government ever in India's history. Uh, and he was also coming in as a chief minister, or what would be considered the equivalent of a governor here of an Indian state. He'd been a, the chief minister for about a dozen years. So there, were, there was both kind of a, a hope that this would mean 
seen that some of the gridlock uh, in Indian parliament from having had and, and within the executive from having had non-majority governments or having coalition party governments uh, would have been resolved. Uh, there was also some hope uh, that he would be a, bring a different style of functioning to Delhi uh, in the sense of having been an executive and run a state. And so there, were, there was interest in how he would make the transition from a state leader uh, to a uh, to a national leader. Uh, there was also some, it was considered significant uh, because this was not somebody that many people knew about. Uh, having said that, uh, on the foreign policy side, where what they did know uh, was that uh, when he came to power, just before that, in many different countries, he had not been welcomed, including in, in the West. And so there were some questions about what that would mean uh, for India's relations with a number of countries. Uh, since then, we've had we've got a number of different answers uh, uh, in that respect. So uh, now we've just seen uh, the prime minister completing visits to Belgium, to the, here in the United States, and Saudi Arabia. Why these three countries at this time, and what did he accomplish on, uh, on this trip? Uh, so Prime Minister Modi, in his uh, almost two years now, his uh, official anniversary will be in late May of the two year uh, of, of the two years of his government. But he's actually been extremely active on the global stage. He's been he's he's travelled a fair amount, uh, somewhat more than his predecessor, not as much as some people in India think. I think some think that he travels too much. Uh, but he is uh, his travels are usually associated, and as with these three countries, associated with kind of domestic goals. Uh, and to each of those three countries. He went for slightly different purposes, but they were broadly linked to kind of the the broader goals the government uh, 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 says that it has, which is of, of creating a kind of strong, prosperous India uh, that plays a larger role uh, and a responsible role on the world stage. So to Belgium, he had gone for both a bilateral visit, uh, paid his respects uh, in Brussels at the site of the attack as well. Uh, counterterrorism has been a, a main, main, major priority for his government. Um, to the US, he was here for the Nuclear Security Summit to make uh, uh, India's commitment public, um, but also to, I, I think, demonstrate in many ways that India is willing to play its uh, play its part uh, in terms of being a responsible uh, uh, nuclear power. India is not a uh, not recognized as one of the kind of uh, nuclear states, uh, but does have uh, nuclear weapons and has tested. Uh, uh, has has uh, undertaken nuclear tests. Uh, to the Saudi visit, that was actually quite significant. Uh, the Saudi partnership is interesting because you have to see it within the broader context of India's relations uh, with the Middle East. Uh, the Middle East is extremely important to India, uh, Saudi in particular, for a number of different reasons. One is energy. Uh, about 60% of India's oil, and India uh, imports large quantities. That's about 80 to 80% of its oil is that it uses is imported. 60% uh, of that comes uh, from the Middle East, the most from uh, Saudi. India has a number of Indian workers uh, in the in the region, about 7 million, out of which uh, over uh, almost 3 million are in Saudi as well. Uh, it's also become a source of uh, India's hoping that Saudi investments start pouring in uh, as well. Uh, and I think there's a broader now uh, set of uh, uh, priorities to do with defense and especially counterterrorism cooperation. Uh, so he was there for a bilateral visit, a guest of the king, uh, and I think it was uh, both on the kind of economic and energy side, but also on the defense and cooperation side. Those were the, the priorities on that trip. How important is the bilateral India-U.S. relationship? Uh, it's extremely important. Um, uh, for and it's it's become it's been a priority for governments in both countries. Uh, it's important for India because the goals that not just the Modi government, uh, but the last two or three Indian governments have have laid out of this kind of strong, prosperous, uh, inclusive 
of India that, that plays a, a, a large role in the world stage uh, is, is not possible to, to, to a great extent uh, without their a relationship with the U.S. The, the U.S. can either play a very supportive role to achieve those goals or in some ways play spoiler. And I think the governments uh, in Delhi have, over the last uh, 15, 20 years now, have seen, uh, have found a way uh, to make that relationship work for them. So they, the, whether it's the relationship with the U.S. on the economic side, which has been growing, India, uh, the U.S. is now India's largest trade partner, if you think about goods and services, uh, whether it is in terms of investment, uh, whether it's in terms of security, partnerships, including ensuring a stable uh, Asia-Pacific region, or what now the countries have been calling the Indo-Asia-Pacific. Um, and there's that values aspect as well, which is as, uh, as the largest and oldest democracy in the world, as both uh, countries' leaders like to point out, uh, it, it is something that, they, that helps the relationship along. It does pose constraints as well. So I think both for strategic reasons, values reasons, and then the economic reasons that it can be a market uh, for American companies, uh, but now increasingly also a source of investments with Indian companies investing, uh, investing here. As you pointed out in the series of events that you led a couple of years ago on the Indian election, there are more Indians voted in their elections than there are Americans alive. I found that fascinating. Um, so last set of questions, speaking of China, can you comment on India's neighborhood policy? Um, sure. India's um, neighborhood policy has tended to be a priority for almost every government. Uh, the Modi government, like previous governments, uh, perhaps to a, a more intensive uh, degree, but has made it a, a priority. And, and governments have done this uh, for, dif uh, for different reasons. Uh, the larger neighbors, of course, China and Pakistan, the, the two larger uh, territorial neighbors. Um, but there are also the, the smaller neighbors, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, uh, Burma. Uh, and India thinks of even kind of countries like uh, Mauritius, Maldives, uh, as part of its larger neighborhood, Afghanistan as well. Um, the reason it's become a, a Mr. Modi has made it a priority is that there is a sense that if India doesn't take the neighborhood along, uh, it will not be able to you know, get break out of its region in terms of thinking more ambitiously, that it will do well um, to actually take the neighborhood along with it. Uh, there, have been, uh, there have been setbacks to this, particularly in terms of India-Pakistan relations. Um, uh, though there has been attempt, uh, an attempt on the part of Prime Minister Minister Modi and Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif to try to reach a modus vivendi, to try to engage economically. There have been setbacks on this front, uh, though both on the security side, but also in terms of internal dynamics, uh, particularly between the civilian leadership and the military uh, leadership at Maksa, some of the differences on this. Um, so there have been some differences on that. But what Modi, Mr. Modi's government, at least on the broader neighborhood side has been doing, has now sent in some ways a message uh, that it will not let uh, uh, the relationship with Pakistan necessarily stop its uh, uh, its engagement with the other countries, uh, but that he's willing to work with other countries. And if Pakistan would like to come along, that's great on the economic side, but India would not wait on that. Uh, China is very interesting because India uh, has uh, both a uh, pretty cooperative relationship, but also a lot of elements of uh, competition and some elements of potentially conflict in that relationship. Uh, it is uh, become uh, China's relationship with Pakistan is also seen as somewhat uh, problematic. India has been trying to grow the uh, economic relationship, but there are still security issues, including a uh, including a border dispute that uh, is still uh, is, is still around, as well as China's Pakistan relationship and China's policy in India's both territorial uh, uh, neighbors, but also its maritime uh, area. India also has concerns, as does the U.S., about uh, the kind of Asia that China would like to see. 
Uh, both would like to see a more inclusive uh, Asia and, a, and an Asia where the rules of the international order are maintained. Well, thanks again for your time today, Tanvi. Very interesting. Thank you, Fred. You can learn more about Tanvi Madan and the India Project on our website at brookings.edu slash India Project. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Kolzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Carissa Nitschie, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Deuce.